So I decided I would try going to university. Did a year, I came top of the class. I did second year, top of the class. Got accepted into a huge university in England. Everyone was telling me like, you're incredible. You're really smart. You're genius. You're great. And I was like, this is so strange because when I was in school, you're not going to believe this, but everyone told me I was stupid and useless. Welcome to the Beautifully Complex podcast, where I share insights and strategies on parenting neurodivergent kids straight from the trenches. I'm your host, Penny Williams. I'm a parenting coach, author, and mindset mama, honored to guide you on the journey of raising your atypical kid. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Beautifully Complex podcast. I am really, really honored and excited to have Jonathan Jolie here to talk with us today about what it's like to grow up feeling other in many ways and how that is affecting our kids so that we can understand better what their experience is like and how to help them and how to guide them to being their true selves, to be who they really are and be very comfortable in who they are. Thanks so much for being here, Jonathan. I'm so honored to have you on the podcast. Will you start by letting everyone listening know who you are and what you do? Yeah, uh, thanks for uh, for inviting me on. My name is Jonathan Jolie, also known as Jonathan Sacconi Jolie. A lot of people would know me for the fact that 14 years ago, I was one of the early adopters of the internet and YouTube, and I started sort of documenting my life. Definitely what I have learned where one of my ADHD traits about me is just my inability to just chill and just not, you know, do 10,000 things. And I think, you know, when I found the internet, it was a perfect way for me to sort of exercise and allow me to kind of like overindulge my overthinking mind. Mm. And then, yeah, I did that for 10, 12 years. And then we sort of from that, we fell into, you know, Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and all the other platforms. And then last year I wrote a book called All My Friends Are Invisible. And it was just sort of, I think during lockdown, I really sort of, I don't know, I don't know, it was either lockdown or it was me hitting 40. But it was one of those mm. milestones in my life that mm-hmm. made me sort of like pause for a moment and think, who are you? You know, and I had to answer myself the question. It took me a year and the hardest thing I've ever done in my life because I am dyslexic and ADHD. I didn't finish school because of those reasons. So I've never had like a traditional Mm. education. So when the idea of writing a book came up, I was thinking, no way am I going to be able to sit there and actually achieve that. But it took me a year, but I did actually do it. I did probably enjoy more reading the audiobook because I find audiobooks um, perfect balance for me. Yeah. And why don't you share a little bit about what you share in your book, more about your story maybe and growing up feeling other. I know you've used that terminology and I think it's such a powerful message and you're sharing more than your story. You know, you're so vulnerable and really sharing a piece of yourself by being so open and so impactful for others. And I think, you know, so many parents like me really struggle to understand our kids' experience. They are different than their peers, and they're very aware that they're different than their peers, and they're struggling with that. And And we want so badly to help them, but we don't always know what that's like or how to help. And so I'm hoping you can share a little bit to shed some light on that for us as well. Yeah, I think, you know, it came 
the idea of telling that story, um, if any of your listeners have read the book, or maybe they should think about reading the book or listening to the book, because mm-hmm. I did read it in Audible. <laughs> but I found that, like, I don't think I had ever planned on sharing that story. Mm. You know, I thought, you know, that world, Domdi, and those invisible friends and those relationships I had, like, I, I was contented with the idea of keeping that to myself forever, you know, because the world can be a little bit toxic mm-hmm. and it can uh, it can kind of um, bring darkness to light. But as long as you keep the light hidden, no one will ever know about it and then it's safe. And then I noticed, you know, I have I ended up with four children. I have four children and one of them started having mental health problems and another one started having identity problems and the other two little ones are too young. So I'm just waiting for that roller coaster to begin. <laughs> and I started to, you know, because it was during lockdown, I started becoming their like counselor and I started, you know, using my own experiences with the two very different experiences, two different things that they had. And I was able to sort of like help them out. And then I would start telling them stories about my worlds and my imaginary friends and my imagination and how I felt. And, you know, and then it sort of resonated with them. And then I started to notice that they were improving by me sharing, you know, relating to their story and realizing that you're not alone because we all feel very alone when we're sad or we're triggered or we're, you know, spiraling. You always feel that you're the only one. Yeah. And then my, my child said to me, you know, why don't you tell other people your story? Why don't you tell anyone about this? And I was like, oh, I, I don't know. I'm too afraid. You know, I, I don't know if I want to. And they're like, well, you tell us and it made us better. And I was like, okay. You know, and I kind of, I went to create a, children's book about um you know a very sort of superficial level of the story and then i ended up accidentally telling the entire story because once <laughs> i sort of opened the box you know we all we all have that in our minds you know um yeah my mind is funny because i wouldn't say i have a photographic memory but i have an emotional memory mm. and i can tap into emotions from you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, you know, some parts of the book, people have asked me, they're like, how did you remember those things? And I'm like, I didn't remember them, but I remember the emotion attached to the event. Right. And once I sort of tapped into the emotion, I felt like I was in a time machine that I could just step into a time machine because I had so much unresolved emotional trauma from my childhood. And it's just, all I did is I put it in a box and I stored it away in my head. And I thought, well, I'll never deal with this, you know, so I'll just leave it all here. And then, yeah, I started to unbox it. And as I went through it, I sort of started to rekindle the relationship with these invisible friends that I had. And I sort of was brought, you know, right back into my childhood. And suddenly I could feel everything. I could remember every, every injustice, mm-hmm. every time I was spat on and hit on and punched. And, you know, and I just, I felt like so, it was all overwhelming, you know. And then I decided I was just going to, just write it all down, you know? And I knew, I knew when I was doing it, I was like, this is a terrible idea, (laughs) you know, because you're sharing your safe place of life. Mm -hmm. You know, you're sharing the thing that you, you said you would never, ever, ever, ever share, you know, because it's easy to share on the internet and social media. It's easy to share your life. But when it comes to, you know, our happy place, you know, when you close your eyes at night or if you, if you experience ASMR, the place you go to when you do that, or the place you meditate at, you know, the spirit guide that you have, you know, there's so many ways of describing my connection to the invisible. And um, I just, I didn't want to share it, but I I did. And then, you know, it's been an 
an interesting experience as people have read it because you can read it from the aspect of, you know, the mental health element, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't know what chapter number it is, but in 1989, I considered ending my life Mm -hmm. because I just, I couldn't understand. No one, no one would listen to me. No one would understand me. You know, I was experiencing high levels of anxiety. Um, I was being triggered by depression, but this was a time when mental health wasn't being discussed. Yeah. You know, people wouldn't consider that the emotional complexity of a child, how can a child be depressed? What have you got to be, what have you got to be unhappy Mm. about? You don't have bills to pay. You're in the, you know what I mean? And, And now I have children and I look at them and think, yeah, they have everything they could ever want, but yet they struggle with anxiety and they struggle with depression and they struggle with identity and they have all these things that are absolutely nothing to do with us as parents. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just the way they're built and how they choose to interpret emotions, interpret social experiences. It's just, you know, it, it, there's no guidebook to how you can raise a child without mental health because mental health is part of our brains. Yes. You know, it's like some people are good at maths, you know, and it's like, oh, well done, you're good at maths. And some people have you know, crippling anxiety. Yeah. It's not something that they can fix. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, me personally, I find CBD very helpful. Yeah. Things are a lot easier now. Like, but well, you know, I, I, in my twenties, I found an alternative illegal way of settling my mind, but it, it really bothered me because I was made to feel I was a criminal then. Right. You know, but all I was doing is that I was just, I was just trying to manage my mental health. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately the country I lived in, said, you know, that's a criminal offense to do that. Right, right. You know? So I'm thankful that today, and I know in some parts of America, they've even gone much further and they've made it legal. Mm-hmm. So I'm a great believer in that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was medicine for you. Yeah, but I had to struggle for, you know, over 25 years before I even figured out what that was. And then I had to, you know, go through a phase of like, for me, I, I think it's funny because I dropped out of school because everyone told me in school that I had no potential, mm. you know, I, I wasn't, you know, cause I couldn't pay attention. And, you know, what I did really enjoy doing was like uh, writing and coming up with stories and writing poems. And, you know, I was just like, I was a dreamer. Yeah. I enjoyed living in my imagination more than I enjoyed living here, mm. you know? And I, if you read the book, you kind of get that whole essence of that. I was torn between two worlds and I lived in my world, Domdi, where everyone was great. You know, all my friends were really nice and really attentive and cared about my needs. And then when I would flick back to the real world, it was so brutal, you know? And I think, again, for your listeners who don't know me, uh, I'm a non-binary person. And as I grew up in Ireland in the 80s, Ireland is very, very conservative. Mm -hmm. Um, It was basically run by the church and state. There was no divide between both of those. So they're very strict on how people acted and presented. And uh, I knew I felt a little bit queer, but I knew it was something that there was no tolerance for as well. So there was that compounded on the fact that I had all these mental health issues. But then on top of that, you know, I'm, I'm also made to feel that like, you know, all those thoughts in your mind when you think that you're a girl, but you're not a boy, that's very confusing. Yeah. And then you're being told how you act and how you think is wrong. Mm-hmm. It was just really bad timing for me to be born, you know? Yeah, I get it. Yeah, because I just just think, you know, coming full circle now, having a child who has presented as a trans person and has now kind of come out as a trans person and changed their identity. And I've been dealing with that now from a parent 
perspective, unlike my parents who dealt with it as the parent and they looked at me and they thought, yeah, you just need to keep that on the inside. You just, you can't share that. Mm-hmm. You can't tell anyone about that. Yeah. You know, and, and every time I would express it, I would find myself being punched and spat on and told I was a mistake, mm. you know? And I was like, okay, so the world tells me I'm a mistake and the people who are supposed to guide me in this world are spitting at me and reminding me that what the boys in school are also doing to me is also telling me that everything is wrong, Yeah, you know? And then, you know, it's like at the end of the book, I don't want to spoil it, but I made a choice that either I could not live anymore or I could live, but I couldn't live as Jonathan anymore. I had to be somebody else. Yeah. You know, so I had to like put away my invisible world. I had to leave my friends. I had to um, become someone else. And the moment I became someone else and the moment I sort of was like, oh, do you know what? I'm going to be really good at sports because that way boys won't be mean to me. And it worked. It worked very, very well, you know? And, uh, and I got lost in this projection that I created for myself all the way up until 40, Wow! you know, and then I sort of realized what I had done. And I was like, oh, no, (laughs) I've lived a lie my whole life. Mm. So powerful, your story. And there's several things that you said that I'd love to expand on a little bit that resonate with me. Part of having ADHD means I don't know when not to stop talking. No, (laughs) no. And (laughs) your story and just sharing it is so amazingly powerful. I know I keep using that word, but it is. And I think there's a lot of power for you in that too, right? There's a lot of healing probably in that self-reflection. It's a mixture. Unfortunately, a lot of people, and unfortunately with the political climate and things that are going on culturally, there's a lot of vested interest in my story not being read, Mm. you know, and people like me to just stay quiet. You know, and uh, and that's really hard, you know, because like, you know, as I explained how I grew up and how the world told me to be, it took me 30 years from the moment I decided, which I was around 14, to become somebody else and then lived all the way up to 40. And then I felt there maybe the world was ready. Maybe I could sort of sneak out and become me, you know, and as soon as I did that, I was very quickly reminded of all the things I was told as a child, unfortunately, are still being told to me today. That it's not real. You're making it up. It's, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It's not true. You're gay. You know what I mean? Like, it's just people say all sorts of derogatory things to me because they can't understand that, you know, being somebody like me is different to you. And that's okay. Because we're all different. And we all should be allowed to kind of, you know, traverse. You know, I feel like, I was happy to stay unlabeled when I first mentioned that I wasn't, you know, but then people were just so confused by it, you know? Um, So I said, fine, yeah, like non-binary is the only thing that makes sense to me because I don't feel like a boy, but I don't feel like a girl, but I look like a boy, but I'm happy as a boy. Maybe as a child, I definitely wanted to transition to a girl, but that was never allowed to happen. And maybe, you know, being a non-binary person is because (laughs) I was shown so much so much that I can only be what I am that maybe I just got used to that Mm -hmm. idea you know but then that doesn't affect my sexuality you know because my sexuality and identity are not you know they align themselves sometimes but not always right and then the melding of having a mind like mine you know which is just sometimes you don't know what's real and what's not you know but either way you know when people say like 
you know, my, my naysayers would say that like, oh, Giselle and Domdi and some of the characters from my book, you know, it's not real, you know, and I'm like, well, it is to me and it saved my life. And, you know, when I opened that box, you know, two years ago to write the book, they all came back and they're still here and I still talk to them. And I know that makes me sound really crazy, <laughs> but to me, it's like, it brings me peace. And I'm like, I'm really sorry I put you guys in that box 30 years ago. And even when I think about that idea, like I get really upset. Like I, I filmed a, a diary when I was writing the book. Um, I haven't like published it or anything. I've been just, I was just filming it for myself. And I cried so much because every time I thought about the fact that these people were the only people when I was a child that made me feel somewhat normal. Mm. Oh, look, I'm getting all emotional now. Yeah. And then, I, you know, the world told me for 30 years to ignore them. And I did that. And now they've come back again. And now the world's telling me again, you need to ignore them. You know, and, and but now I'm like 40 years old and I'm a lot stronger so I can kind of push back and say, I don't want to ignore them. Like, you know, they bring me peace. You know, and then it's like, well, now you need to be canceled mm. <laughs> because you're not doing what we're telling you to do. So you're still getting all of that really negative messaging about being authentically yourself. Yeah. And yeah. it's so tragic. And I know, you know, for for our neurodivergent kids, they are getting that messaging constantly, especially in school. You know, school is an activity of conformity. <laughs> you know, let's all fit in this box. Let's all learn the same way. Let's all act the same way. Let's all you know, sort of dress the same way. It's it's very much about success and that success only looks one way. And so our kids are getting very similar negative messaging to what you're talking about. And we are constantly telling them that either they're not good enough because they're not able to maybe perform academically like their same age peers, or we're saying that, you know, they're too emotional right? They should put that away. And you're so right. It's culture. It's culture. And then that we're raised in that culture. So as parents, you know, that's what we're taught. And it's so hard sometimes to break those habits. And so a lot of the work that I do with parents is just, you have to put all that away. <laughs> you have to put away anybody else's expectations. And you have to raise this individual that you have. Who are they? And giving them permission, not that anybody needs permission to be themselves. I really don't like using that word there, but that was what came to mind. But, you know, giving them permission to be totally themselves, to do and be and learn and grow in whatever way is working for them and brings them the most peace and joy. And we don't do that as a culture, certainly, which is exactly what your story is illustrating. But as parents, like, we have to step in and we have to change that narrative for our kids as much as we possibly can. But the similarities there, you know, between growing up with a different identity, maybe, or questioning your identity, but also not feeling like you fit. Like, so many kids with ADHD or autism or anxiety, depression, learning disabilities, you know, they don't feel like they fit. And what you're talking about and, and just listening to you talk is so resonating with me for my own son who's 19 now, but he struggled in so many of the same ways. And, and it's interesting because at times I've seen him 
sort of try to escape and not be himself, to try to build a different reality for himself, maybe online. And I'm realizing that that is sort of self-preservation, right? It's him trying to protect who he really is from sort of being attacked or destroyed. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think you had said that um, neurodiversion children are kind of, this is being echoed to them right now, you know, and they're told all the time, you know, that they've, they're mistaken, you know, which I think is interesting because I did drop out of school because school told me I was wrong. But then at 26, I found myself in university, you know, and I found myself in university because I kept getting fired from jobs um, no. because I just, I just, yeah, I just, I couldn't work, you know, I, I, I couldn't do anything because I'm very good at convincing people I'm somebody I'm not. But then very quickly after getting past the initial interview or even in relationships, it would always eventually kind of come crashing down Yeah, because I was not the person I said I was, but I'd become a very good chameleon at pretending I was different people. So I decided I would try going to university as an adult. I didn't need my, um, my school. Didn't matter why I didn't school anymore. It was just an interview. So I went to do an interview and then they let me, they said, yeah, you can try on the course. You can do a year on the course. And I did a year. I came top of the class, straight into second year, did second year, top of the class, got accepted into a huge university in England moved over to England. Everyone was telling me like, you're incredible. You're really smart. You're a genius. You're great. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is so strange because when I was in school, you're not going to believe this. Yes. But everyone told me I was stupid and useless. And then in university, because you keep telling me I'm intelligent, I started to believe you. Yes. And then the more I believed you, the more I sort of, you know, became graduated as a first class honors and, you know, I'm throwing my hat in the air. And I'm like, but I, I was told that the best thing I could do in life was to become a carpenter or or sweep stores or work in a shop or, you know, something that wouldn't mm. require me to use, you know what I mean, my mind as much, just a yeah. sort of a trade is the best you could hope for. And and then suddenly I'm in this like other world and I'm being told these other things and I'm like, wait, hold on. So school obviously didn't appreciate the way I spoke or the way I taught, mm-hmm. but university did. So with my children, when my children may be struggling in certain areas of school, you know, I'm like, yeah, but you guys are really, really good at creative writing and you guys are really good at expressing yourself and you're good at this and you're good at that. And unfortunately, school doesn't really um, value yeah. people the same way. It's sort of just like, you need to all be good at A, B and C. It's a system of conformity. Yeah. Yeah. And I am a child who is terrible at A, B and C. My wife who went to school, was one of those kids that got in the newspaper because she just like absolutely smashed it. Like she did so well in school. (laughs) Her father was in Italy. He was a commandatore, which is like a knight, you know, because of his um, involvement in history, literature. He worked in John Hopkins University, you know, he had an incredible Mm. career as as a professor. And then his daughter went on in school. But the minute she stepped into university, she just crashed and burned. Yeah. You know, and she just couldn't do it. And between both of us, I always say, well, at least both of us, we have the kids covered because Anna did amazing in school. I crashed and burned. She crashed and burned in university, but I succeeded, you know, so between the two of us, you know. Yeah. You know, the experience in school for our kids who are different is so awful. 
you know, my son has been so traumatized by his school experience and just not feeling like he could be himself. I mean, that's truly what we're Mm -hmm. talking about. So often when we talk about the ways that our neurodivergent kids struggle in school, it's that they're not allowed to be themselves. They're asked to do things in a neurotypical fashion. They're asked to sit and learn in a neurotypical fashion. They're asked to show what they learned in a neurotypical fashion, right? They're not allowed to inject creativity. They're not allowed to do it in their own way where they could shine and they could feel like they were capable, right? The messaging that you were getting as a child was, you're not going to amount to anything because you can't do this in the way that we say that you need to do this. And it's Mm. so unfortunate because if we would just open our minds and hearts and let kids do things in their own way and be themselves, they could really shine and thrive. Every kid could. Yeah, I think for my generation, you know, I was born in the 80s and now it's like the internet to me was like, you know, especially back in the um, the early adopting period of the internet, I found a way of making an income and it's the longest job I've ever had. I've never been fired from this job. You know, right. I've actually enjoyed doing it, you know, and I mm-hmm. do it in such a a unique way where because of my uniqueness in my, the way I think and how, and in the stuff, things that I say is what people are interested in. Yeah. I couldn't go to work and do a job it's funny because people say to me now, you know, oh, you have a very successful business. I'm like, I don't have a successful business. I don't want to be the CEO of my business. I, I, I'm the creative <laughs> director and I, I pay accountants and lawyers to run the things yep. that I just don't understand. Tax yep. and VAT and insurance and pension. Forget all that. I'm the ideas man, you know. Yeah, and that, That's yeah. what I like doing, you know, and I really enjoy it. And I try and instill it in my children because I do see that there is just something about the school period where you know, you're you're handed a sort of a default friend group and the friends mm-hmm. that kind of like um, surface to the top are the children who are most, who find conformity the easiest. Yep. Right. And they're the ones that then the teachers say to them, oh, you guys are great. And then they sort of favor those children. And then the sort mm-hmm. of different tinkers, they kind of get pushed to the outskirts and they're made to feel that you know, oh, you guys are different and you guys don't know how to be the same as everyone else or you're not good at sport or you're a different, you know, you might not be good at this or maybe you want to choose to express yourself a bit darker or something. And then I, I always say to my daughter, because she's she's the one that kind of is, uh, definitely leans to the dark side. Uh, <laughs> and I always say to her, I'm like, yeah, but, you know, in 20 years, I'm telling you, you, you we, who you think right now is most likely to succeed, it's not going to be that way. You know, I'm like, yeah, succession and success, you know, they're they're very different things, you know, like to me personally, Mm. I don't value success with a monetary thing. I know because I have a large following and a lot of people like to talk about me. People think that, you know, you're driven by, you know, making money and having financial wealth. And to me, it's like, no, it's about freedom. Oh, yeah. I work hard in order to be allowed to exist the way I am. The alternative for me, if not doing this job, means that I would have to go and conform because, you know, right now I have the freedom not to conform because I am my own boss, mm-hmm. you know, which brings a, a ton of other problems, yes. but those <laughs> other problems are, are okay for me, 
you know? Yeah. Because it, yeah. it, if it suits my core problems, and my core problems is my inability to, you know, conform, <laughs> then yeah. then I'm, I'm okay with all the other hassle and stuff that comes with it. You know, it, it's yeah, kind of hard yeah. to explain. Anyone listening who gets me, who's like me, is like, yeah, I get that. Thanks so much, Jonathan, for being here and sharing not only your story, but part of yourself with all of us. It's a really tough thing to be so vulnerable out in the world. And we're so appreciative that you are doing that because I know that we as parents are hearing things that we can relate to in our own kids, even though some of your story isn't really about your ADHD or dyslexia we're hearing a lot of relatable stuff for our own kids who are neurodivergent. And we are going to come back with a part two in the next episode, episode 181, will be part two of my conversation with Jonathan. And we're gonna talk so much more about those coping mechanisms and other things that I know you will find relatable and maybe even really insightful about your own kids. So I hope you'll stay tuned for that next week. Thanks for joining me on the Beautifully Complex podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to check out my online courses and parent coaching at parentingadhdandautism.com and at thebehaviorrevolution.com. Thank you.